So you're in Romans 5, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read that together. We're going to read that today. And then we're just going to unpack it. Now, um, let me just be clear. Uh, I'm a teacher. So I'm going to read some of the passage and then probably stop because it might get confusing. And then go, did you get what that meant? Here's what it meant. Okay, let's keep going. And then we're going to get into what this text is really saying. Because I think what is, is being said in this text today is of monumental importance. Not only for every Christian everywhere, but for Salem Baptist Christian, I'm sorry, Salem Baptist Church, Salem Baptist Christian School, Maryland Christian Camp, and everybody else affiliated with Salem at this time. All right? So here we are. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, all right, I'm going to stop. You know why I'm stopping. Because it's been a while. Everything that, when Pastor Kibbit was here and he preached through Romans 5, 1 through 11, all of that stuff about peace with God and how we have that now. We are declared righteous by our faith in Christ. All that. For that reason, here we go. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Do you catch that? Now, the, the question, we can get into a theological argument. Are, are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? The answer, yes. There's your answer. We are sinners. We're going to get that here in a moment. And we all sin because when Adam sinned, we all sinned with Adam. That's what the text is saying. Now, then it's what's neat about it. If you have an ESV, it kind of shows you that little hyphen there, a little dash. Paul just leaves his thought. You ever done that? You ever, moms, you ever talk to your kid about something and see something over here is on fire? Dash, right? And that's what happens. Paul just stops there, doesn't complete his thought, and then jumps into verse 13 to kind of really embe- uh, go a little bit more elaborate on what he's talking about. Verse 13, for, in, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, listen. He's not saying that is, if there's no law against it, it's okay, right? That's not what he's saying, because he's going to show you how the effects of sin were still in the world even before Moses gave the law. Ready? Here's where it is. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So here's what he's saying. He goes, guys, listen, their sin wasn't counted as sin before the law, but we know there was sin in the world because people kept dying. You catch that? And death is the result of sin. Now here's where we get to it. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam again, if because of that death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Here's the key passage I want you to focus on. We're going to hang everything on this. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Will you pray with me as we get started this morning? Our Father, we thank you for this day. We are grateful now to have this time to spend in your word. Father, we've worshiped. We've celebrated baptism. Now as we look to your word, I pray, Father, that you would help me to be clear. And if I say anything today that is merely my opinion, may it be forever forgotten in the ears of those listening here in this building or watching at home. May it be forgotten. May it never come to our mind again. But Lord, may the truths of your word be that which is remembered. And may it change us from the inside out. Father, it is my prayer today that none of us, myself, we would not leave here the same. We would take the truths of what, we, what we're going to study today, and it would change us, that your Holy Spirit would change us more like your son Jesus. And we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen. All right, so real quick, as we start this, I want to give you a quote this morning. One of my favorite uh, guys, my students will tell you, I use this phrase, one of my favorite dead guys. All right? I love Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great pastor. Uh, You can get his sermons. You can listen to his sermons free all the time. Uh, I would suggest, uh, you know, if you got an earbud in, put that in and get a dictionary because he he takes you some deep places, and he is very well-spoken. But here's what he says about this passage. He says, the whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened to Adam and then what has happened and will yet, will yet happen because of Christ. Every human being you meet, you, me, everyone, it can be summed up as in what has happened to us because of Adam and what has happened to us because of our faith in Christ. So I want to talk today about this idea in Adam, in Christ. And what I'm going to do is kind of go over three things, what I see in this passage, and there's probably more, but three things I see in this passage that we, by virtue of our birth, we have in Adam. I'm going to start there first. So I got to start with the bad news. All right? Let's go right to it. First, in Adam, we have received death. And that's in verse 5, 15, and 17. It says, many died through one man's trespass. And then later it says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So very clearly, we see that death is the direct consequence of sin. Now, you you know this. Death begins as a spiritual separation from God. All right? If you're born in this world, as you're conceived, you are now under the penalty of sin and now separated from a holy God. That's how it is. That's how it is. Now, when your children are born, nobody believes that, right? Oh, they're so perfect, right? Beautiful. Nobody, like, if I came to visit you um, and you just had your baby, you know how that, the obligatory pastor visit? You know what I'm talking about? Owen was born on Sunday, and we had so many visitors that day, and I think it was just for all of you to, to verify the birth so that we weren't skipping church. Like, is this real? Is this a real baby? All right. And, uh, and we go, if I walked into there and I, I was able to talk to you, if you'd let me hold your baby. Now, new moms, you know what you do? You, can I hold the baby? Sure. Here's some sanitizer. 
get, get some more, go all the way up. I mean, right? So, I'm a whole, so now you've let me hold your baby, and if I look at your newborn baby, and I say, wow, born in sin, separated from God, right? You would ask me not to return, but that's the fact, isn't it? Now you're like, I don't know. All right, wait till that child gets older. And you're like, yep, sinner, born in sin. Pastor was right, okay? We are all born separated from God. And that culminates till an eventual physical death. It says in the passage, death spread to all men. And there's beautiful stuff caught in the language there. It actually carries the idea or could could be compared to an odor entering the front door of your house or room and then wafting through every nook and cranny until it permeates the whole room. That's the idea. Death spread everywhere. It's all in. You, can't, you just can't get rid of it. This image should not be missed on us this morning. Death has infiltrated and saturated every aspect of our lives. The author of Hebrew in Hebrews 2.15 tells us that we are literally held in slavery all our lives by the fear of death. It's true, isn't it? I mean, we can see it on television when we see ads for Nugenics. I'm I'm over 40, and I didn't take those commercials seriously until my 40th birthday. I was 39 years old at the Y, just finished working out, cardio and weights going, yeah, whatever, Frank Thomas, I don't believe that. And then the very next day, I was like, I'm still feeling good. 40 and a day, I get to the Y, I sit down, and I go, I don't want to do any of this. Everything hurts. I'm pretty sure Jill's trying to kill me in my sleep because everything hurts right now. Right? So we see this on our ads. Take this, you'll feel better. You'll reverse the signs of aging. Right, ladies? How much stuff is marketed towards you to reverse aging? Right? As soon, so take this. Rub this on. You'll be, you'll be like you're 17 again. Now, for me, I hope not because I was not in good shape at 17. Like, I'll take 35. All right? It's a sweet spot. But everything's doing that. I'm also at that place where people start saying things like midlife crisis. I'm like, shut up. You don't know that. I could rally. I could live to 95. Okay? I'm looking at a vehicle going, that seems reasonable, but man, I really like that one. Honey, do I have permission to let this be my midlife crisis? Like, like me driving convertible is going to make me go back in time and feel younger again. I'm just going to have to wear more sunscreen on top of my dome. It's not going to help at all. All right? And if I put a hat on, it's gone. But we, we live this way. We're under the reign of death. We see it. Death literally looms over us like a hunter who views his prey ready at any moment to pounce and destroy that victim. You're like, Rick, Sunday morning, it's family service. You're going a little dark, aren't you? I'm just telling you, this is where we're at. This is where we're at, but we're not done yet because in Adam, we've also received condemnation. Verse 16 says, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That term condemnation is a judicial or legal term. It means to declare guilty, to judge guilty, no options. 
no chance of appeal for such a, verdict, uh, such a guilty verdict. You're done. Because of our sin, we stand condemned before God in the divine court. We've got no defense. Nobody's even coming. No appeal, no chance. That's what the word condemnation means. All right? So we're death spread to all of us. We've got death like a hunter leaning over us. We're all standing condemned. And then finally, in Adam, we've received sinfulness. We've received sinfulness. It says in verse 19, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. See, not only do we stand condemned before God without any possibility or opportunity to better our situation, it's the inherent nature of all humankind to sin. The entire human race, I like to use the term, is fractured. You ever broken a bone? You ever fractured something? And you have to go to the doctor and they have to set it right. Why do they set it right? So they can grow back straight. Otherwise, you might have a deformity. Okay? We are all fractured. And we don't go right. We don't think right. Literally, our, we're physically, all of our human faculties are tainted by sin. Physically. Physically tainted by sin. We're emotionally tainted by sin. You see, emotions aren't a problem. We sinfully use our emotions. You might have somebody who just starts crying and goes, I'm sorry to get emotional. No, that's being human. It's to be emotional. Things should upset you. We live in a fallen world. We should see things and that upset us. It's even okay to get angry. But when does it become sinful? When you go too far with it. When you act in a sinful way. Our emotions are sinful. Our intellect is sinful. We don't think right. Morally, we're sinful. We don't desire to choose right. I mean, just think about it just for a moment. How many of you, even those of you who have been saved for such a long time, when you feel like at work, you may be in trouble for something, there's that inside that goes, hey, you could probably blame so-and-so. Or you could get out of it by this way. We do that. I'm going to go in and submit to you that I think we're so morally bankrupt and sinful that I don't think any, I think even our best decisions, like, oh, this is a good, I'm doing something good here, that sometimes operates out of a sinful desire. Sometimes even coming to church can be out of a sinful desire. Because if I don't show up, you know somebody's going to say something next week. Or I'm going to have guilt over it. Or if we have a service day, I better go. If I don't, I'll feel bad about it. And somebody will say, where were you yesterday? We missed you. And very passive aggressive, right? I'm just maybe, this is maybe my counseling session and you can just be a part of it, but I'm assuming that's a lot of us. We have that inside of us that we don't even think that way. And then ultimately spiritually, sin has tainted all of us. We cannot in any way better our situation of being condemned and have death looming over us. We can't better that on our own because we're sinful. Everything we do even that which we could be or someone could perceive as good is still tainted in some way by our sinful nature. Now you're like, Rick, you're making me feel bad. I don't want to make you feel bad. I want to show you that you are bad. That's the goal. 
Like, I, I've, I've heard before, I, I, it's one of those things where I've heard it said, but now I've said it so many times, I don't know who told me that, so it's this. There's no such thing as good people and bad people. There's just bad people. You get it? That's what the Scriptures tell us. There's just bad people. But wait a minute. So, so in Adam, to say our condition is severe would be the biggest understatement in this solar system. We are in desperate need. Our condition in Adam is marked by inherent sinfulness, separation from God, condemnation from God, and no possibility to better this under our own power. However, I mean, now, what a beautiful word however is. However, those of us who've placed our faith in Christ alone have been placed in Christ at the moment of our salvation. C.J.'s baptism today was his declaration that his salvation put him in Christ. He was already there. You and me who have put our faith in Jesus are now in Christ. And that's got monumental importance. One author says this, Paul's point here is not so much that the groups affected by Christ and Adam respectively are coextensive, meaning that, you know, how bad it is. His point was to show this. That Christ affects those who are his, just as certainly as Adam does those who are his. That Christ affects those who are his, as certainly as Adam affects those who are his. So we are obviously, we, can, we don't have to do this. We don't have to go around the room and ask you. We can all see how we have been affected by Adam, right? We know it. We know it. You're going to be at work tomorrow going, I'm in Adam. But what the author here, what Paul is trying to tell us is that just like your effects because of Adam's, what Adam has done, his sin, just, because, just like how Adam affects you, Christ now affects you. All right? So let's look at what we get or what we've received in Christ. First, in Christ we've received grace. Verse 15. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Christ, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Christ is a, 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 grace is a really beautiful word. It's the Greek word that means undeserved, unmerited, special favor. That someone has put a favor on you. They, they favor you. All right? I don't know what your family does if you have multiple children. Our, our kids fight over who's the favorite kid. They do. They, and, they, and they do. I think they're doing it more like tongue-in-cheek, but I don't know. I might have to have a conversation. But we might say, hey, guys, come in. We got, we got some work to do. And the first one in goes, I'm here because I'm the good child. All right. And then I, I've, never heard the la- I've never heard the one that comes in last go, uh, here I am, the disappointment. Okay. That's what I would have done. All right. But listen, all three of my children, I don't have a favorite child. I mean, depending on the day. But I don't really have a favorite child. But as, as principal of Salem, I've got three favorite kids. You understand what I'm doing? You're like, well, who are they? Don't, don't. I, I shouldn't have to explain. If I'm in a meeting and some, one of them comes in, then they've got my attention. Now, depends on what they need. Some of them just come because they know dad has snacks. Dad's got a little closet, and now, every, now everybody knows. Mr. Connor's got snacks, teachers, students, if you need them. If you just want to visit the school and come get a snack, I've got them. But if they need access to me, they've got me, right? 
If I'm in a meeting and my wife calls, I'm taking the call. Because you know better than to ghost your wife. Right? That's going to be like, some of you, okay, now I see some judgment here. I see people looking like, you better listen to the pastor. All right? Don't come forward in an altar call because you're not ghosting your wife. All right? But see, they have favor. Right? But my wife works at the school. So do I have a favorite employee? Yes. She's got access. Okay? Because that's how it works in life. Same thing with God. We have received grace. Look at this. Our deserved death has been met with undeserved favor with God. Don't let that get lost because we all have heard it a thousand times. We deserved death, but we have been met with favor with God. One sin brought condemnation for all. One act of obedience has brought salvation available for all. That's grace. We now stand before God in a special relationship. Not only that, in Christ, we have received justification. I love this word. It's a beautiful word. Verse 16 says, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Justification is another legal term. Paul uses a lot of legal terms in Romans. It's almost like he's building a case for faith. Now you see why we named it this. He's like a defense attorney building a case. And he says here, he uses the term justify or justification. It's a legal term. Just like condemnation was a legal term, meaning to judge guilty, justification is its opposite. It means to declare not guilty. To declare not guilty. It means literally to declare righteous. You're declaring someone to be righteous. Now check this out. Look what happens here. We get pardoned from the guilt and penalty of sin. But then, here's what happens. It's like the Father takes our sin, places it on Christ, and that was crucified. But then, at the moment of our faith, he takes Christ's righteous, perfect, obedient life and puts that on our account. Martin Luther, the reformer, called this the great exchange. That we who should have been judged guilty and condemned are judged not guilty and set free. That's the gospel. That happens at the moment you put your faith in Christ. And that should affect us. That we all stand completely declared to be righteous. And God declares us righteous solely on the basis of the merits of Christ's righteousness. It's not me. I didn't do it. You didn't do it. Remember, you can't do anything to better your situation. This is often called a gift righteousness, not earned. One theologian calls it an alien righteousness, meaning it comes from outside of you because you can't do it. And it's not a reset button that Jesus says, okay, I'll save you from your past stuff. Now you go be good. That's not it either. Because in his declaration of righteousness, guess what? You're declared righteous. But you're not. Because I don't know about you, 
but I still sin. You understand what I'm saying? I hope that wasn't a big confession or surprise to you. I thought I'd get more amens from my wife. But I still sin. Why? Because remember what I told you earlier. There's no good people and bad people. There's just what? Bad people. And Jesus. And I'm still a bad person. I'm just a bad person that Jesus died for and has declared righteous by faith. And I look forward to the day that I get this last one. You see, in Christ, we will receive righteousness. There's an important way that Paul words this. Look at the way he words it. In verse 19, For as by the one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, in justification that we looked at a minute ago, We who believe in Jesus have been declared to be righteous. The problem is, however, we know that we're not righteous. Just get behind the wheel of your car this afternoon and have someone cut you off on the way to wherever you're going. Because they did it on purpose, you tell yourself. You see, we know we're not righteous. Have someone cut in front of you at line at the bank acting all confused, like, where do I go? Is it right here? Oh, right here in front of you? Okay. That's how it works. Listen, we, though declared to be righteous in the eyes of God, still bear the effect and defect of sin. We still don't think, feel, or choose right. And the beauty of justification is that we're declared to be righteous even though we're not And the blessing of this future righteousness, mentioned here in verse 19, is is a future blessing. It's like a future righteousness. We're declared to be righteous now, but we're not yet made righteous. And the blessing described in this passage here is received at the coming of Christ when he transforms our lowly body to be like his glorious body, just like Paul is later going to say in Philippians 3.21, when he changes this. You see, we talk about that glorification, about like, man, I'm looking forward to get a new body. Almost like you're getting forward to look at a new car. Like, this one's run down. Ready to get that new model. But really deep down, that our bodies now are changed, and there's no effects of sin physically, morally either. I look forward to that day. Think about this for a minute. I look forward to the day in the kingdom when we're going to have new, we're going to be our glorified selves, no more taint of sin. We might even like each other in the kingdom. Think about that. You might look over somebody going, I'm not a big fan of him. We like him in the kingdom because we won't have the taint of sin and whatever's causing us to like them won't have it. That's the beauty of this gospel. It's a future righteousness. On that day, the declaration, when Christ returns, the declaration of our righteousness now will become a gift righteousness forever. No more sin nature. No more effects of the fall in our lives. Now I want to return back for a moment to that quote by Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Here it is up on the screen again. The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what has happened to Adam and what has happened and yet will happen because of Christ. Now we read that and go, that's theologically true. Thank you. It's awesome. But brothers and sisters, just as our new condition, Adam places us in a situation with no hope of remedy from ourselves, And our new place in Christ brings us to a new position where we were declared to be righteous before God. While we await that day that he's going to make us righteous, 
You see, that's the beauty of the theology in this passage. But if I may, if all we do today is learn this beautiful truth and we leave feeling warm and fuzzy about how much God feels about us, I think we've vastly missed the point of this passage. You see, like all of Scripture, we're not meant to just look at the passage only for what it says about God and us. We have to see what it says about others as well. This passage is beautiful for us who know Christ as our Savior, but this passage is very terrifying to those who don't. And dear friends, that's our problem. We could look at that and go, oh, hope they hear, I hope they hear this. That's our job. Our job now, our mission as a church has not changed. People have been asking, well, you know, when, full disclosure, well, when the new guy comes in, we might have a new direction. No, because the direction is still the same. We have been charged to make disciples of all nations. That's the job. And if somebody comes in and goes, no, we're going to go somewhere else, so am I. Because our mission cannot change. Our mission is still the gospel. And it cannot change. It will not change no matter who God calls to lead us. We are convinced that God has placed us together in this location at 429 South Broad Street to reach people in our surrounding community, in our city, in our county, and the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have, been pla- we have not been placed here to entertain ourselves. We have not been placed here to be comfortable. We have not been placed here to build an empire or a brand. We've been placed here by God to spread the gospel to those who don't know it or are confused by it. That's our job. I believe Paul here is giving us a great way to describe the truth of the life-changing gospel in a way that's simple to share. Now, I'm not saying it's the only way. I'm just saying it's a good one. And there's really no science to this. And we've learned different things. There's different books available of how we could do this probably better. How could we go about it? But what I want to do here is just simply give you, if you will let me, permit me just a few minutes, I'm about to share with you a way that could quite possibly revolutionize how you share the gospel. And I'm just going to take it from the text. You ready? First, and you're like, are there notes for this? Write them in. First, the gospel is a universal need. The gospel is a universal need. What does that mean? No matter who you are, no matter your upbringing, no matter your education, no matter your job or your 401k, none of that changes that all of us stand guilty before a holy God because of our sinful human nature inherited by our forefather, Adam. Now, you might talk to somebody, well, they don't believe in Adam. But I guarantee if they turn on the news, they'll see the effects of Adam right? They could probably, if they're honest, they'll see it in their own lives, the effects of Adam. You see, all of us are described in this chapter. That's you, that's me, that's your family members, that's your husband or your wife, your children, your family, your friends, your co-workers. Everyone is described in Romans 5. That's number one, that this is a universal need. Everyone needs to hear it. Number two, the other important part that I think Paul, the way Paul is sharing the gospel with this audience here is that we can't do what Jesus has done. We can't do what Jesus has done. We can't please a holy and infinite God. It's impossible. 
It's impossible. We cannot in any way better our situation by our own merits. Everything we do, everything we do, even that which we could perceive as good or other people could think we're good, is still tainted in some way by our sinful nature. We cannot please a holy and infinite God, but Jesus can and has. His obedience, his gift of righteousness, is placed on the account of those who believe. Now, what does that mean, believe? And, and guys, this came out of us, Marywood week. I was speaking at Marywood, and I didn't have this written down. But for some reason, this just came out, and it's been kind of my mantra since. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means that you believe that he is who he and the Bible says he is, that he's God. And that he did what the Bible says he did, that he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. If that's what your belief is, that's salvation. Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what the Bible says he did. We are declared to be righteous by that faith in Christ. Now we will be made righteous at his return. We who were once in Adam, worthy of death and lost forever, are now in Christ and receiving his grace We receive that and eternal life forevermore. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. Nothing else. Not good works, not good actions, not church attendance. That comes later. We'll talk about what that means later, but let's focus on the gospel. Our job is not to go out of these doors and make church attenders or good people, good voters, good citizens. It's not our job. Why? Because there's no good people and bad people. There's just bad people and Jesus. And our job is to explain that. That's what we must share with the men, women, and children who surround this spot of land at 429 South Broad Street. This gospel is what motivates the staff at Marywood Christian Camp each year to give up their summers to serve in various ways to hundreds and thousands of young people each year. You ask me, why would you want to do this? Why don't you go... It's summer. Go have fun. Have you ever heard us say that to each other? Why don't you just go have fun? Guys, sharing the gospel is fun. Maybe you're doing it wrong. But it's fun if you're sharing the right way. This gospel is what motivates and drives the faculty and staff of SBCS to sacrifice higher paying wages to come. And not only to teach students each day, but to make sure that each student hears and understands the gospel. This is what drives many of you to go outside of these walls in your neighborhood, at your work, at your school, in your office, to make sure that when given the opportunity, you are able to share the beauty of this gospel with people who desperately need to hear it. This must be the culture of Salem Baptist Church no matter what, no matter who God calls to be our senior pastor. The culture of Salem Baptist Church has to be set before we call a pastor. If we think a senior pastor is going to come and give us a culture, we're fools. We can define that culture and say, we're about the gospel here. And we're about going out and sharing that gospel and reaching the people of this community. That's what our job's about. We have to rid ourselves of any trappings that will take that away, whether it be comfort or personal desires or any other thing that could shackle us so that we could be free to go from this place and proclaim that we were in Adam guilty of judgment and condemnation and death, but Christ has given us grace and justification and will someday make us right with him forever. 
Friends, that's our mission. And can I tell you, it is a glorious mission. It is a glorious mission. So let us now go from this place today, emboldened by the Word of God, to proclaim this beautiful gospel at every opportunity. Will you pray with me today? Father, your word is clear. We have a mission. And that mission doesn't change by time, location. It doesn't change by the pastoral staff here. It doesn't even change when people leave us and we have an all-new congregation. The mission remains the same. Father, forgive me where I've lost sight of that mission. Sometimes I can get distracted by lesser things. And I pray for my friends here who may be with me. I pray that all of us, as we leave this place today, we would be comforted in in what we are in you. How even though we stand before you worthy of condemnation and death, because of faith in Christ, because of what your son has done for us, we stand before you declared righteous, even though we know we're not. And that's all by your grace. And we look forward to the day when you're going to return and you're going to make all things right and you're going to make us righteous. And Father, as we like to pray around here, we pray that if it's your will, that would be today. But Father, if I may, there are people in this community who need to hear this gospel. And as much as I would love to see your son Jesus today, will you give us more time so that we can go out now and we can share this gospel, maybe where we failed in the past, that we can do it now? Whatever time you give us, Father, let us occupy our time with sharing the beautiful message of who we were in Adam and now who we can be through faith in Christ. Embolden us, make us men, women, and children who love nothing more but to share the beautiful gospel. We pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen.